How are those croissants? <laughs> oh, poor you, Rory. He's already had three, probably. <laughs> just because he, he's not here doesn't mean he's not eaten a croissant. That oh, is a slur. I have not eaten a croissant. He'll know what they are, though, because I, I WhatsApped us all. You know, that, that WhatsApp group that I'm involved in. So he, even though he's not with us, he knows what they are, because I was going to get him to guess the flavour of the croissant. But he knows, doesn't he? He knows. You know, that, it is, away. that is uh, lesson 101 in trolling, sending a group message about food that only part of that group will eat. Trolling? Trolling. Mm. Nice. What have, you, what have you had for your brunch? Well, I haven't had brunch, Hugh, obviously. That, <laughs> well, would, be, that well, would be outrageous. Do you only ever have brunch when you're with us, do you mean? It's not, it's not a say, Smith daily occurrence. I'd say that you account for 95% of my brunches, yeah. That, that is definitely true. Um, what did I have for breakfast? I had some shreddies. Other cereals are available. And then I had some toast with homemade jam. It was delicious. Yeah, you had the same cereal as my nine and six-year-old children. Congratulations. That's because shreddies, shreddies are the best cereal and small children are the best identifiers of the best cereal. Can I just have a my say on the shreddies debate? Yes, please I, do. I don't personally eat shreddies, but Nikki eats shreddies, but never in a bowl with milk, in a Tupperware box, dry. Just handfuls of dry shreddies. What's that all about? Is that a southern thing? I like a, I like a dry cereal, not in a line. But shreddies? Any dry cereal, really. I'm uh, not. I'm not. I don't. I don't like cereal with lots of milk. I used to have a Weetabix sandwich at school. I used to take a Weetabix sandwich to school. So two Weetabix with butter in between. Your parents sent you to school with a Weetabix, and we wonder why you've turned out like you have. White, <laughs> white bread or brown bread? Why am I asking? <laughs> it's not bread it's just, involved. The, the Weetabix was the bread. Oh, well, the Weetabix wasn't in... No, a Weetabix sandwich means there's Weetabix between two pieces of bread. A butter sandwich with Weetabix as the bread. And what, Not quite as catchy, but... So you just had butter and dry Weetabix? Yeah, yeah that, would be, that would be my mid-morning snack with my, with my milk that I Why? have at the age of six. There are people that have been released from months in captivity <laughs> under brutal, rep- oppressive conditions who would be horrified to hear about what you and your other halves are eating. This is Set Piece Menu because I want to change the subject. The podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Andy Hinchcliffe in the red zone, Stephen Wyeth in the amber zone, and Rory Smith celebrating outside the stadium despite several pleas from authorities for him to not do so. Um, the food, as you've heard already, has been split between two locations. Chinch, would you now, rather than on our text group, would you like to explain what the croissants are? Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie and say they're home-baked. They're not, but they are uh, an apricot croissant and a chocolate and hazelnut croissant, which have been liberated <laughs> from um, the, the finest deli stroke cafe in Poynton, Cheshire, uh, Cafano. Cafano, they really do supply the best croissants in Cheshire. So they were free? No, they weren't free. I paid for them. <laughs> in that case, you don't need they to be the They should be plug. free next time. Uh, Rory, um, I, I appreciate that you are some miles away. Uh, you are mm. with family today. Tell us a little bit about what they might be providing you for, for a brunch or lunch, which is either at least as good as croissant or maybe even better. Well, I mean, as, as already established, I don't have brunch unless, unless I'm with you. Uh, so it won't be brunch. Uh, I'm not quite sure what lunch holds for me, if I'm honest. It's um, it's it, it's a mystery game at this stage. It is half past eleven. I'm yet to make that choice. <laughs> I'm, I'm horrified that Rory is trying to make us seem like we're more middle class than he is. <laughs> I, mean, I don't often. Do you often have brunch? I'll eat whenever food becomes available. I mean, let's. <laughs> we do. We do subscribe to the Reacher theory of eat when available because you never know when the next meal is coming. The thing is, if you get up at six thirty, as I do, and have a, have an intense workout, you have your breakfast about maybe eight o'clock. You're hungry. 
by 11, half 11, so you've got to have something True. before you have your lunch at 2 o'clock. So you've got to keep fueling the powerhouse that is Chinch. You are a middleweight boxer, little and often, Chinch. The football is, do you know what we're talking about today? Oh, this is a, a topic close to my heart, I would say. Is it about how rubbish teams are in the Premier League? <laughs> yes, but particularly three. We are talking about those that currently occupy the Premier League's bottom three. I say currently, frankly, it's not only as is, but as was, and why that might be the case. What happened to the traditional all-hands-to-the-pump relegation battle? often fought ferociously by teams upsetting precedent and form to pick up dramatic, hard-won and unlikely points to either rise from the ashes to safety or gloriously fail in their attempts to achieve said safety. Whether it's the hiatus or the restart or perhaps even though we've been treated in the past, Norwich are down and it took until this past weekend for Bournemouth and Aston Villa to win. So today we're going to talk about the relegation fight, more like relegation flake-out. Thank you to thesaurus.com for finding that inelegant solution to my need for alliteration in every situation. Get in touch with the podcast, setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. We continue to ask for next expect five-star iTunes reviews and subscriptions to our YouTube channel. Thank you to all those who have obliged so far. This email arrived in the SPM Bermuda Triangle of post-recording pre-release last week. It is another one from Elizabeth Brunninger. Dear Steve, Rory, Hugh and Andy, in reverse alphabetical order, so Steve gets a turn at the head of the list. Says Much Elizabeth. appreciated, Elizabeth. This Thank is you. a quick follow-up to my email in praise of the beeswax wrap, which raised a few questions that I will endeavour to answer here. Where am I, she says, a question posed by Rory. I am in Australia. Can you get paid for mentioning beeswax wraps? A question we all asked, probably, but how much and by who, I don't know. Where can you get them? I once ordered lemon, lime and bitters at a pub in London and discovered that what I thought was a universal beverage was actually uniquely Australian. Thinking this might perhaps be a similar case, I googled Beeswax Wraps UK. The result at the very top advertised Beeswax Wraps handmade in Yorkshire. So I suppose they are rather more universal than my favourite drink. I also discovered that you can make them yourself, provided, of course, that you have beeswax. Thank you for the podcast. I enjoy it very much, especially the bits about football. Regards, Elizabeth. And also, regular listener... My mother also advises that she has them and that there is a very useful website for beeswax wraps provision in the UK. It's beeswaxwraps.co.uk. Yeah, I'm encouraged by that, certainly. I'm, I'm intrigued by the idea of getting beeswax wraps. I'm, I'm on board with them. Um, but I'm also a big advocate of lemon lime bitters, which, you, which are not uniquely Australian, because you can get them in New Zealand as well. But they're certainly, they're certainly Antipodean. Yes, they are. The Anzac drink they of They are really spreading their net far and wide across the globe. Now, sticking with the zoological theme, pun totally intended, there is an email from Robbie Harms who says this. Dear those who have more than one England cap, Hugh, Rory and Steve, I have to start with this. Your podcast is excellent. I have listened to it while driving, like most others, mowing the lawn, hearing Chinch discuss the youth maturity paradox while I rumbled around our backyard, satisfyingly mowing that corner of grass that was sticking up, has been one of the highlights of the summer. But I've also begun listening to it while running, which is where this story begins. I live in Asheville, North Carolina, which is very mountainous, and I love to run in these mountains. Frequently, I go on these trail running adventures with my good friend Jordan, but sometimes I run alone. Black bears are a common sight on these runs. We are, after all, running through their homes. I should point out here that these are publicly accessible trails that are meant for hiking, biking, running, and all other types of hipster millennial activities. When we encounter these bears, sometimes on the trail, other times off to the side, Jordan is very adept at dealing with them. He claps, yells, and otherwise makes himself very known to these bears, which typically carry on with no further intervention. I, however, will never get used to seeing a bear and have been happy to maintain a streak of never seeing one while running alone. Until a couple of weeks ago. 
I was running by myself, listening to either SPM 183 or 184, when the thought struck me that podcast listening, I typically don't listen wearing headphones, he says, as they are clunky and get very sweaty, could maybe deter bears, who, as alluded to above... (laughs) typically stay away from human noise. I was getting ready to praise my four British protectors for allowing me to run fearlessly through the woods when, of course, I saw a bear. It was off to the trail to the left, but still close enough for me to panic. Instead of doing the tried-and-true method of making a lot of noise, I ran in the opposite direction and decided that I would climb up to the road that ran adjacent through the trail to avoid the bear. As soon as I got to said road, what did I see? The bear, sitting in the middle of the road, staring at me curiously. I sprinted back down to the train and waited a few more minutes for the bear to leave the road, which it did, unharmed. I soon finished the run and the podcast, and I hope my bear friend is okay and thriving. All of this is to say that SPM, while brilliant, is not an effective bear repellent. Perhaps I'll have to start listening to a more raucous podcast on these trail runs. All the best from Robbie. I don't think we ever saw our podcast as a bear repellent. Was was that part of our? It was never advertised as. Yeah, a I think, I don't we went for that, did we? I think I think we did bring it up when we were workshopping it, <laughs> whether that might be a factor. But I'm intrigued. He listens to podcasts without headphones. Yeah, so he blares them out at his speaker, I'd imagine. How does he hold his phone? In his hand, like, probably. To, but is he holding? Is he holding it to his ear? No, you just because obviously, if you run, if you're a runner like myself, you, you, your hands should be not far away from your face. They shouldn't be down by your side, should they, or behind your back? But do you not? Do you, are you not using them as like a pis, in like a piston motion? So is do yeah, you not a small find piston motion, small range of movement? You don't need to go crazy. Do you not find that you kind of get in a, a kind of a wave effect where you know Chinch is talking, it's really loud. Then Hugh comes in, it's really quiet. Then Steve comes in, it's really loud. Then I come in. It's really... <laughs> But the way that you go on, it's loud and quiet and loud and quiet and loud and quiet, and then someone All else right, comes okay. in. There we go. Let's not make this personal change. <laughs> I just would, would suggest that if you want to avoid bears whilst out exercising, then the Fallowfield Loop around South Manchester is the perfect environment for an almost entirely, I'm sure, bear-free <laughs> ride or run. This may seem a silly question, but brown bear, are they smaller than grizzly bears? How big this is, is a... This is a black bear. A black bear. How, a black bear. Are they... How, Again, whether it's young or... But how big... Are they big? I know all bears seemingly are biggish. Paddington was quite small. But <laughs> bears are generally quite dangerous and you can get eviscerated. So is this a big... Is it a baby bear? I mean, what kind of what size is it? Because if it's like a, you're an, an Ewok... Me, you're looking at me like I have just, the answer to the question. You just dried I've, over it, couldn't you? I've read almost every word sent by Robbie, so I can't tell you. Robbie, if you need to uh, fill those gaps, then please do. And can I apologise? All Star Wars, I'm not sure whether Ewoks are bears. Are they? I think Ewoks are Ewoks. Have some respect for the race. So they're actually a completely separate genus. Is that, they're, is that, they're, teddy ah, ba- they're teddy bears. Teddy bears. Teddy bears. So that is from Robbie Harms, who, funnily enough, didn't come to any harm at all, um, which is nice for him. Uh, and indeed, neither did the bear. This is from Mark Ridley. Hi, all. I am typing this whilst watching an England v West Indies test match. Rory, that's cricket. Uh, and much of the analysis is technique-based, even to a fairly min- minuscule detail regarding where bowlers position their wrists, plant their feet in order to attain more pace, swing, spin, or accuracy, and for the avoidance of injuries. Cricket is a more complex game and maybe analysis of techniques is easier but if you take another sport such as athletics one of the best and most interesting analysts is Michael Johnson who could break down a 100 meter sprint in fine detail. In football most debate centres around work rates and systems with very limited if any debate surrounding technique. When Jurgen Klopp introduced a throwing coach at Liverpool he was largely ridiculed. It would be interesting to know why Rory Delap can throw a ball towards the far post or why a nondescript Everton fullback from the 1990s can pinpoint a corner onto the head of a towering centre-forward. It must be down to more than practice. That's from Mark 
Ridley. Chinch, can we you... Talk, we talk a lot about technique. What kind of technical about technique in my, conversations my excellent... do you tend to have? Um, my co-com, I mentioned technique. Normally, you're kind of over free kicks, but in general, in general play, when players slice the ball or they get it right, we talk about what they did to get it right. And there is, yeah, even running styles. I, I described a goal the other day, um, and I, I talked about how a player actually changed his stride pattern to enable him to get to the ball in the position he wanted to get to so he could score the goal. So we talk about technique, not just on the ball, but also off it as well. People generally, I'm, I'm, I'm the same, want whatever they're not getting or whatever they, they, they feel they're not getting. How would commentary about football technique, something like throw-ins maybe, but how would football technique appear in co-commentary? Would you, would you want kind of Gary Neville breaking down someone's foot position? I, don't, I mean, I'd... I'm not necessarily throw-ins. Sure it throw-ins wouldn't be a, b- a big thing, would it? I suppose Roy Delat must have more elastic arms than mother because basically it is pretty simple. Everybody has to throw the ball in with a similar kind of technique. The ball is above your head and you throw it. But everything else, striking the ball, free kick, all this type of stuff is is different, isn't it? And people do it in different ways. But throw-ins are pretty universal. It's just whether you can fling it further or not, isn't it? And the sports that Mark alludes to where they do have these sorts of conversations, cricket and athletics, are both sports where a lot happens in a short space of time mm. and then there is quite a long hiatus before it, that explosion it, of activity again. It's the landline. It's the landline. Uh, Chinch, is it Rory's lap? Oh, yeah. no, it's just, oh. he's just completely screened that call. I didn't realise that was a working phone, Chinch. <laughs> I just assumed it was decorative. We need a picture of that phone on Twitter because it doesn't look real in the slightest. Um, you're right, that there, are, there are opportunities to talk about technique, perhaps in those games where it, uh, it stops and the conversation can then take place. Now, last week we stumbled upon an idea. Can you fit both Chinch and a 1980s hit record into a sentence? Oh, yes. Well, Chris Wilkerson is a regular contributor who has something on this and indeed something on something else. He writes this. Hello once more, podcast greats. <laughs> Before I go into what my Photoshop has done this week and how any 80s music I liked has become a game of where can Chinch fit in here, much like Hoddle, I found Hinchcliffe not as versatile as I'd hoped, I would like to use the recent pod on Desire to celebrate a small victory. The week before the Not Live pods, I asked a couple of questions. The idea of losing the dressing room was discussed and mildly dismissed, especially by one contributor who, it should be stressed, does not have curtains, which was a uh, picture posted Mm. on Twitter over the course of the last week, which Rory did not like the reaction to. Uh, Imagine my delight to hear the same people talking about how desire is often about the will to work for your teammates and that collective responsibility of the group. I posit that this proves a manager can lose the dressing room. For if they lose that collective spirit, if they are not able to maintain it, then standards will drop because the dressing room is not together. Arguably the most important part of a manager's job. Equally, that collective spirit must also include the manager. If many players do not care to push their standards for the manager, is it possible to say that they have lost the dressing room? Imagine, if you would, a manager of, I don't know, Sheffield Wednesday. Maybe this manager has become someone that some players have begun to dislike. Even mild-mannered and quieter ones who prefer a warmer manager, perhaps. One who would compliment their work. Someone like Steve McLaren (laughs) says, not Joe Royal. It's important to make that distinction. People weren't running those extra yards for that sort of manager. Not at all incidentally, Chris found this BBC article after one former, uh, could be different, could be the same, one former Wednesday manager was dismissed, which has this section. Jewel explained... Simon Donnelly and Phil O'Donnell have hardly kicked a ball this season and and Vim Yonk the same, along with Andy Hinchcliffe, while Gilles Builder has not pulled his weight. Now, depending on how you read that No, 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 that's saying I was injured. That's not saying... I've had a look at this and I am not in the category of Gilles Builder. I am in the other category of injured greats. Yes? So what do you think about the dressing room point? Um, 
I tend to think it has changed an awful lot. Back when I started, it, it didn't really matter who the manager was. He was the law and you responded to what he did. But as time has gone by, I've talked about the responsibility of players and how players conduct themselves individually and collectively differently than they did years ago. So even though you might think, well, maybe Guardiola's different, maybe Klopp's different, he's that kind of old manager that the, the, the players listen to and carry out exactly what he says. A lot of other coaches, I think, is still down to the players and they will do what they want to do and they've got to find that from within themselves. It's not You can't always say, well, the coach should do this or the coach should say that. Ultimately, it is then down to the players to carry out what really needs to be done. And it isn't a question of liking or disliking a coach or manager either. You know, I wasn't a big fan of PJ, as I now call him. But um, And he should have been in his, in his pyjamas a lot sooner than he, he was. Um, but I, I still wanted... When I played for Shepherd, again, I felt a responsibility to the club and to my teammates. I'm not just saying that. I genuinely did. And I thought, well, we have to get results despite the coach. And in many ways, that's what it's all about. Not all players are going to like, because some are in the team and out of the team. You can't like or d- dislike the coach that intently, maybe. You've just got to go out and do your job. And I think players are starting to, to pull together to get the job done as players, rather than saying, well, it's up to the coach to motivate us and, and get us to play well. And, and if you have uh, decided from that that uh, Paul Jewell did, in lo- did indeed lose the dressing room, here is um, the, s- the next sentence in that BBC article from when Paul Jewell lost his job. Bearing in mind, he's just, just said that Vim Yonk hardly kicked a ball this season for his team, and that was one of the reasons why he felt like the tide was turning against him. He then says this, Look at the players I was forced to let go in the summer. The likes of Niklas Alexanderson, Peter Atherton, Ian Nolan, Pavel Cernicek, Richard Cresswell, Danny Sonner, and Vim Yonk. Yes. <laughs> so that'll be why he hardly kicked a ball this season. That is absolutely right. Uh, anyway, please, says Chris, enjoy some 80s photoshops that we will put on Twitter. These are of album covers with Chinch instead of the lead star on those album covers, and some 80s hits with Ch-Ch-Chinch Changes. The, the, the Springsteen Tunnel of Love, that is one of my favourite albums. It means a lot to me. And to see my face where Bruce's is, leaning against a Cadillac with a, a, a lace, a leather lace tie, it's, it's everything I've dreamed of. I believe that is a bolo tie, Chinch. What the some, you... people, some people think it might be called a bolero, but it's not. But they're it's wrong, aren't a bolo they? Tie. So that's the leather, the leather-like neck, necklace-y thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah. thing that, that Americans wear. Yeah, those those particularly yeah. in the south, I would suggest. Yeah, I like those, but I don't like the ones that have like piano, black and white piano keyboards on them. That's, no, that's a just, that's a tie, that's, that's isn't just it? A yeah, yeah. Tie. So it's the bolero. No, it's the bolo. It's uh, the bolo, the isn't bolo it? I, I might I might buy one. I might at least, trendy. At least you know what to ask for next time you're in Tyrac. <laughs> yeah, is it still going Tyrac? No, has I it think, gone under. I think I think Tyrac went under a long time ago. Yeah, a- as did two minutes of audio about bolero <laughs> and the confusion <laughs> about whether that actually is a tie in the southern states of America. Um, so then, back to Chris and his 80s hits with Chitch Changes. Um, Hungry Like a Wolf by Duran Duran actually goes like this. In touch with the ground, I'm on the hunt, I'm after you, smell like I sound, abused by the crowd, and I'm hungry for Chinese. Straddle the line, hope they pass inside, I'm on the hunt, I'm after you. Chinch is alive, which dish goes with wine? And I'm hungry for Chinese. Is, is this Chris? Chris, you need to get out more. It's tremendous work, but you need to get a life. You really, really do. And he, and he signs off with this simple one. Um, you can call me Chunch. <laughs> more, more on the call Chunch situation later, maybe. Chunch. Yes. Maybe we can talk about that later. Um, a, t- a, a question for the uh, Seppi's Menu board. Have we made Chris a buffalo yet? Can you remember? I, you're supposed well, to be you, in charge you of keep keeping the list. Yeah, I don't keep a list. I never get asked. Um, I, I don't know. 
Chris, if you're not already, congratulations. You are a buffalo. Indeed, if you are a buffalo, can you let me know? Because I've completely forgotten. Have we got a sound forgotten. effect? If we make someone a buffalo, we can. We should have something impressive to, to mark the occasion. No, no great big grunt. <laughs> Large grunt. <laughs> <laughs> or a big blob of feces landing on the ground. That's what we should have. Uh, correspondence to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Thank you very much indeed. Now, there is a feature on the Football Manager Match Engine, which uh, I know all four of us are very familiar with, called Shouts, which allows you to send some fairly generic in-game messages to your team or individuals within the team. Apart from things like encourage and praise, there is one called Show Some Passion. You wonder if Daniel Farker, Dean Smith and Eddie Howe might have been furiously clicking on this during their Premier League restart before realising it's just a game. And while Farker is still pressing it, at least Smith and Howe could press praise when they eventually won during the weekend just gone. But lest I remind everyone, they are in a relegation battle. Battle! And it would appear that until their most recent game, there had been very little fight. Not only when it's required in the context of relegation battlers down the years, pulling off results and attempts at a daring escape that suggests that there is plenty of fight available for those attempting to stay up in the world's most lucrative football division. So why did it take until now for Bournemouth and Aston Villa to try and fan the dying embers of their Premier League status. And how would you explain Norwich? Literally, just how do you explain Norwich? <laughs> Why the apparent meek surrender of the bottom three? Less relegation fight, more relegation flake out. I naively thought that it was set up perfectly for a brilliant sort of five or six team, nine game shootout for survival that the circumstances of the COVID-19 hiatus had enabled those teams down the bottom to effectively press the reset button. All that thing about momentum being against them, anxiety building, surely that had all evaporated. They'd had time to plan. They'd had time to focus on what was required. And they were the ones, with the exception of those teams chasing the Champions League places, they were the last remaining teams in the Premier League with something tangible to play for. So surely they were going to come out snarling, fighting for their lives, knowing, having had that opportunity to reflect upon what was at stake, Premier League survival. And I think as Dean Smith has spoken about in the last week or so, the Aston Villa manager, that many of the players who are playing for teams that will get relegated may never experience playing in the Premier League again. Yet they've had these weeks, months even, to focus on what was necessary and to perhaps pinpoint some of the games that they needed to go out and win to make things really interesting. And that we might have even seen teams down the bottom picking up a higher than average percentage of points and that it might have even ended up being quite a high points total required to survive. And instead, as Hugh has just said, they've sort of meekly surrendered. And unless we see something exceptional in the last 10 days or so, the season, it'll be the bottom three, as was at the restart, who go down. But it, is it a question, yes, there may be less fight there. Bournemouth have never been in a, re a relegation battle and they have a philosophy, so maybe they're not, we should, if you're in this situation, you, you've got to find a way to get out of it. So you're saying, well, that we, we, we play good football, we, we pass it around or we concede a lot of goals, doesn't matter, we stick with what we do. That might get us relegated, but we're sticking to our principles. So Bournemouth, Again, I said this all along when I watched them during the season, you have to adapt the way that you play to try and get points. If, you, if it's all about survival and not about style, then you have to do something different. So maybe look at Bournemouth slightly differently to, to Villa and Norwich. But if you're in the bottom three when you have crowds and then you've had the opportunity to maybe set your stall out and say, right, we know what we're going to be facing. Here. OK, there's no fans there, but we've got to give it everything here to try and save ourselves. If you're still not getting wins when there's no fans there, is it just a question that these three teams are simply not good enough? 
simply not good enough. If you have fans in the stadium and that's not inspiring them, and then you take the fans away and you think, well, that might be the best scenario for them. They might be able to play with a bit more freedom. They'll have kind of honed their fitness, done more work than maybe other teams because they know what's at stake. Are we just getting away from the fact that these teams are the three worst teams in the Premier League? Why have you got to the conclusion so quickly, Chinch? We've got at least another half hour of airtime to do. This think. is what I like to do. I like to have my say and then sit back and, and eat a croissant and <laughs> allow all... you to, to pick up my carcass. Pick up my carcass, please. Pick away. <laughs> I think one of the, the thing that surprised me the most is that you, in a normal season, you'd expect, by this stage, seven, eight, nine games left, the stage when we restarted, you'd expect the, the sort of mid-table teams, your Burnleys, your Palaces, your Newcastles and Southamptons and Everton, to to be the fixtures that teams want because it's easier to play teams that have got nothing to play for in theory other than, you know, ninth rather than 10th or whatever than it is to play teams that are fighting for their lives. Those teams have done quite well. Burnley and Newcastle have particularly, I think, have, have shown a real pluck. Burnley obviously got a draw Anfield over the weekend, but they've, they've recorded some, some quite impressive results, but even before that, and with a squad that's really stretched, you know, that they've named four goalkeepers on the bench. Sean Dyche put one of his children on. There was, <laughs> there was, the, I think one of the paramedics who was in attendance at the game ended up at right back. And they, they, but again, they, he really knew his job. He knew, he knew how to stay part of that back four, don't go missing. Exactly. I and mean, that is the basic principle of the paramedic as well. So you can see why they fitted in. But the, um, the, they've really come out of this with, with a degree of, of credit, I think, Burnley, in terms of how much fight they've shown just for the sake but of isn't not that, isn't, isn't that just Burnley? You can't be surprised that Burnley have done all the things that Burnley do well and surprise, surprise, they've got results. Maybe the teams at the bottom needed to be a bit more like Burnley. Well, that's true, Chinch, but then you look at Newcastle and obviously they got battered by Manchester City, but, but Newcastle have, have put a run of form together where, where nobody really saw that coming. And that's a, that's a club where, you know, there's, there's doubts over the, manage, the manager's future. There's the, you know, the, this sort of endless waiting for the takeover. It's a horribly unbalanced squad. They've got all these problems, but, but Newcastle put a decent run of form together. Mm-hmm. Palace took a little longer to get going but you know against Chelsea say they they showed some real some real fight as well um they then went and lost at Villa although there was a there was a curious VAR decision there well, that was a fifth in a row for Palace isn't it so they uh, yeah. perhaps they they're in a different category of not giving a well, well they they <laughs> won their first, Palace won their first game back which took yeah. them to 42 points they were safe right. and what we've seen from them is exactly what you might have expected exactly. to see from yeah. from that sort of team yeah so Palace, if you take Palace as like the base level of what you'd expect of a mid-table team in normal circumstances, that they get to 40-42, they switch off. Happens every year. Kirbishly syndrome. The, <laughs> it's, it's interesting to me that, that Burnley and Newcastle, and to an extent Southampton, although they were kind of, they still had that slight doubt over whether they could be sucked into the relegation battle. But they've, they've really put runs together. They've done really well. We've seen at the top end, United obviously are flying. Chelsea have done pretty well. Leicester are collapsing. That's that's all fine. That happens in the normal course of the season. The one thing that we haven't had is that sense of the, the teams in danger of relegation actually putting runs together to try and get out of it. Brighton probably deserve credit for for getting the, the six points basically that they needed to to secure their position. But West Ham and Watford are going to stay up basically because they've won a couple of games against other teams. Well, in West Ham, West Ham go and beat Norwich, and that probably that's probably enough to keep them up. Bournemouth and Villa, and to an extent Watford, have been disgraceful, to be honest, really, really poor. And it's it makes so little sense that I think you have to assume it's to do with the, with the crowd not being there. And and the point that you made about West Ham that their win, if you like, that 
stopped the rot and that they did have a, a, a mini rot at the beginning of the uh, the restart which suggested they were going to get swept along mm. like everything below them is that, that that was the win against Chelsea and that yeah. sits so stridently out from all the examples of everything else because that is the kind of thing that we expect to happen a lot more often these teams fighting for everything I appreciate Chelsea fighting for their own priorities as well but but West Ham beating Chelsea was the kind of result that we're used to seeing in the final seven, eight games of the season by a team who are desperate to avoid relegation, often at home because of the, having the crowd behind them. And, and yet that is the only one, is it not? Rather than yeah. it being an example um, of one of many. Bournemouth, Leicester's the other one that's in that, in that same category. But that was, a, that was a very strange game in that Leicester were completely in control then for some reason just collapsed. But yeah, you, you should be seeing plenty of those games where where the kind of the existential threat outweighs the kind of the sporting ambition. Chelsea have got something to play for, but but the whole kind of narrative of every relegation battle is that in that in, in that last third of the season, the teams that are under threat find another gear because they are it, it's all or nothing, and and you know wanting to be in the Champions League is not is not nearly as potent an ambition as as wanting to stay in the Premier League. And the fact that none of those results until until this week, none of those results have really come through apart from that West Ham one is really unusual. To, to extend on something that Rory has talked about, what makes this even more remarkable, this situation with the bottom three, is that those two teams that he's just mentioned that are just above the relegation places, Watford and West Ham, have put together runs of form which have made them a target for a surge from one of the sides below the perforated line. The fact that Watford lost three of their first four games back and only drew the other one, suddenly, well, look, they're catchable. They're dangling a carrot for you. The fact that West Ham have lost three of six since they returned from lockdown, they've not surged away. So there has always been a team to pursue for those in the relegation places. Yet just to do the commentator bit, overall, the bottom three sides have played 19 games since the restart. They've only won two of them and they were both in the most recent round of fixtures. They've collectively taken just nine points from 57 available, which is extraordinary. And their collective goal difference is minus 25. They've literally not seemed to put up any sort of fight. And before Rory picks up, I just want to use the example of Norwich in particular, who, yes, their, their position did look fairly bleak because of how far adrift they were. But they've played six games since the resumption. They've lost all six of them. But amongst those, the teams that they have played were the teams that came out of the hiatus in 17th, Watford, 16th, West Ham, 15th, Brighton, 14th, Southampton and 12th, Everton. You couldn't have wanted, under the circumstances, a better run of fixtures. Yet they have won none of them, whilst only Southampton and Everton have actually improved their places anyway. So they've completely given up a brilliant opportunity for the great escape. So is is the obvious conclusion from that that by stripping games of crowds you've removed that kind of impetus and that that inspiration that teams rely on and what we basically have are three very bad teams at the bottom and also it's down to the players to self-motivate because that was the big talking point again is how how coaches managers get the players to play how the players themselves can can enjoy the environment and and play good football and, and win games but it's are we saying that if we hadn't have had the break and the season had gone to its logical, conclu- normal conclusion, would we be seeing very different results? We, we feel Norwich would not have lost 
every single one of those games. I know it's hypothetical, but again, we, probably not, would they? So clearly it has to be some, are they, is it the fear of losing or is it, is it the lack of crowds or is it the lack of fitness or is it a lack of appetite? What, what is causing, it has to be related to, to the break. It but, has to be. But to offer the counterpoint to that, those teams were all stuck in a rut. They were on a slide. Things were conspiring against them before the break. So it may well have been that having hit the skids, they, they wouldn't have been able to recover even with some assistance from, from a home crowd or perhaps the anxiety of a crowd away from home. So yeah, to go back to my original point, they've, they've completely failed to take advantage of the situations within a reset environment that favoured them. And yes, there are times when you could say you have been urged on to achieve better than expected by a home crowd but I think there are also plenty of examples the most recent ones that spring to mind Sunderland and Aston Villa the last time they were relegated where actually the home crowd worked against them such was the anxiety and at times the toxicity of the atmosphere that they really struggled even when they were supposed supposed to have had the the, the home crowd in their favour, so that that actually there is an argument to suggest that these neutral environments, these sterile nu- neutral environments, should have helped those teams who actually had something for which they should have been able to motivate themselves. So, if that's the circumstances that the the, the teams facing relegation. Um found themselves in after the break that's the restart circumstances what about the circumstances brought about by the break itself so we talked about there are countless examples where a team might get momentum Leicester for example the the year before they won the Premier League they managed to from the depths of despair create some sort of momentum that meant that they were a very difficult team to face and of course they they as we all know, saved themselves in, on that occasion and, and, the, and the way that Nigel Pearson particularly managed the team about the way that he was able to corral that team and, and, and use the strength almost of character of the collective as well as the individuals, him being one of them, helped them through that. So, Chinch, if you, if you are fighting relegation and you have to stop for three months and almost ponder this existential crisis that you are going through for three months longer than you would normally do, how much of a difference does that make and how significant would it be for those teams to have to think for three plus months about, oh my goodness, hang on a minute, this could be, ah, and that's, that's almost as debilitating as anything else. Well, the only thing I can relate it, the only thing I can relate it to is the, the, the summer break and trying to get started again if you have a month off or six weeks off. Um, what what is he doing? <laughs> I'm, eating a, I'm eating a stroop waffle. We, we we thought you were. It sounded oh, like you, you were. He, so he does have brunch. He does. Have he just brunch. does it surreptitiously. No, he doesn't. He does it really noisily. No, I just sorry about that. I just remember that I dropped them in my bag. Apologies. That's okay. Uh, do you want me to start that point again? Or are we leaving that in? We're definitely leaving that in. Leaving that in. Okay. Yeah. So again, the only thing I relate to is the time off in the summer, and it is hard to get started again, fitness levels, and again trying to get that momentum at the start of the season. But um, I don't know. It's whether the, those teams saw the three months off as kind of kind of a death row, footballing death row, where you're kind of just waiting for the inevitable. And actually, you don't see it as a positive. And something say, actually, this is a break where we can change our future. And that's why I'm saying if, if the season had played out, would it, would it be different to how it is actually playing out now? Of course, we'll never know. But I think those teams down the bottom. But then, again, is it, is it certain teams like Watford and West Ham who've managed to pull results out of nowhere where the teams below them haven't? Are they, is it again this desire we've talked about before and determination to, to get a job done at all costs? It's not about style, it's about substance, about winning the points. So again, maybe there's a little bit more in certain teams than in others. And for those sides that maybe aren't as good as Watford and, and West Ham, they needed to find a little bit more from within themselves, which they clearly didn't have. But I think the break for those, it seems pretty obvious now, the break for those teams in the bottom three now 
hasn't helped them at all. And the crowds not being there hasn't helped them at all, which we all presumed that it would do. So again, maybe it just highlights the fact that these teams maybe aren't as good as we possibly thought, even though they were struggling anyway, and that the players aren't able to, or the coaches aren't able to motivate them and get them to do what is necessary to stay up. You do, I mean, Chinks will know a lot more about motivation than I, than I do, just he, he had some of it and I don't, but you do wonder whether what removing the crowds does is make it a much more like on paper exercise. So talent wins out. And what, what we've seen exposed is, is how good these teams are when they don't have that external motivation, that external sense of, I've got to do it for these people. The, I'm, you know, the, I've, I'm inspired by the fans. I'm lifted by the crowd. You know, that, that sense of event almost that, that you get when, when you've got sort of a Bay in Villa Park or a Bay in Vitality Stadium. Do you also feel the, there's maybe um, a greater scrutiny of the players? Because I know people watching it, they can get the fake crowd noise and everything, but people are choosing to watch it without the crowd. So are these players maybe feeling that more eyes are on them than maybe would be under normal circumstances? Is that, again, we're looking for excuses here or is it just simply that they've not been good enough and they've not been able to kind of dig deep and find what is necessary? Or we just kind of, again, no crowd and more eyes on them. Are these just excuses? Well, people who are well-versed in the the industries of radio and television will well know that it's a bit weird sometimes knowing that there's an audience watching you but not being able to see them. And sometimes that can be a little bit undermining. It's something that you get used to. But if you're not used to it like these players are, perhaps they are being distracted a little bit. And the idea of, oh, yes, people are watching, but I can't see their reaction. So I don't even know how they're behaving towards me. And that, that can sometimes just be a little unnerving. But I wonder if it's, if it's, if it's even simpler than that. It's that the, the reason that the, the players who play for Norwich and Villa and Bournemouth are playing for Norwich and Villa and Bournemouth and not teams that have enjoyed more success is because they need some form of motivation to, to lift themselves to perform at their absolute peak. Whereas players who are playing for the teams higher up the table effectively are as Chinch says more self-motivating they are capable of going out and executing regardless of circumstance whereas the bottom three in particular but Watford and West Ham to an extent as well until the last couple of weeks and make no mistake they're going to stay up by default both of them they in in a stronger lead they would both have been relegated maybe they need that that extra something from outside maybe it maybe they're not as able to perform to their best regardless of circumstance maybe it is to do with the way that they express their talent and the the ease with which they express their talent. They're obviously all talented, but maybe there's a reason they're not, that they don't appear to be as talented as, as some others. But what can be a greater motivation for a Premier League footballer than not playing in the championship next season? And I don't mean that to disparage the championship, but no one would choose to swap playing 38 games a season in the league for 46, a more attritional campaign where you will enjoy a much lesser degree of fame. So whilst I take Rory's point about the players at the higher end not needing additional motivation from perhaps outside of the camp or to be driven forward in a way that the, that the really great players don't, in terms of a, a motivating factor, avoiding relegation is surely the greatest of all, isn't it? Um, well, I'm probably universally known as a, a top six player, a real top class but you do have international a li- footballer. A little so bit of experience. I, I was going to bring my relegation battle experience to bear here because I've kept quiet. I thought someone might have mentioned it by now, but you did get relegated with Sheffield Wednesday. So I, I hinted at it, but yeah, you didn't take the bait. <clears throat> I'm taking the bait now, hook, line and sinker. Um, with Everton, we had a relegation battle and we stayed up. Uh, or we, we weren't really in a relegation because it was too early in the season, but we kind of 
went from the bottom three and we finished comfortably mid-table. We signed some good players. We eventually were a good team, well coached. But it was that, that, that spirit that was between the players to... I think it was earlier in the season, so it wasn't kind of the last 10 games that we were battling to save ourselves. We kind of, we, we rose up with maybe 15 games to spare. So it was slightly different, but with Sheffield Wednesday, we were, our backs were against the wall all the way through the season. And um, to me, there was a, a lack of application, probably for myself, probably as much as anybody else as well. And I don't, again, where does that, of course we didn't want to play in the championship. We didn't want to get, we weren't choosing to do this, but maybe just in some ways human nature accept your your fate in some ways and think well you know he's not he's not going to pull it out today there's three or four players that we just know aren't going to turn up so we're just swimming against the tide and that's the one thing you normally want to rely on is your own performance and if you've got a team of battlers like Nigel Pearson had at um, at Leicester and look what happened after they avoided relegation you go on to great things and prove prove what a good team they're not just a relegation battling team so it is really t- to do with the the spirit and, and you have to have everybody pulling in this. I know it seems obvious, and, and that's what's not happening, I think, for the teams down the bottom of the Premier League now. But I just wonder, do you see, when we say bat, you know, put, uh, put a battle on, or, or is, is it just hard work? Because you can't make the tackles. You can't be as physical as you used to be 20 years ago playing the game. It is a different game now, isn't it? So I just wonder whether, is it just basically running from A to B? as fast as you possibly can, collectively, individually. Is, is that what we've not seen from Bournemouth and Villa and Norwich? Is it, is it simply that? Because you can't go around barging into people and, and getting away with the fouls or tackles that you got away with 20 years ago. So the game is more a, a football match than it ever was. And maybe these three teams in the bottom three at the moment are, are simply not good enough, regardless of how much they might run around for each other. We have praised Eddie Howe, Dean Smith and Daniel Farker all at different times for the way that they have organised their team, the football that they attempt to play, their coaching prowess. And yet we have probably not praised in equal measure the likes of Nigel Pearson and David Moyes in particular. And it is, to a certain extent, Nigel Pearson's brand of football, although we have spoken before about how we probably unnecessarily criticise him and the style of football and his manner. But David Moyes, we have criticised in the past for perhaps not necessarily being the modern football manager. And yet, appreciate this is by default and not necessarily through their own kind of intrinsic methods. But David Moyes, West Ham are going to survive. Nigel Pearson's Watford are going to survive and the three teams who you would have thought that devoid of emotion whose football works without needing to resort to the old tub thumping old fashioned English ways are the ones that are going to fall by the wayside so if you brought Sam Allardyce in to manage the bottom three teams if you pick it doesn't matter who it was would would he make a difference would he give them a chance of staying in the Premier League because again you're contrasting against stylish football to someone who's been proven in the past to not necessarily glamorous but gets results he's gone in and put out fires at clubs many clubs Neil Warnock does maybe a similar job as well he's been brought in at Middlesbrough to try and keep them up if Sam Allardyce went to one of those bottom three clubs do you feel okay forget Norwich maybe Villa or Bournemouth would they have a better chance would he be able to get that squad to do what he needed them to do because he knows what is needed to finish fourth and bottom I think funny if he'd make the most difference at Norwich wouldn't he just Norwich's problem is not lack of talent it's it's complete absence of organisation. Norwich can't defend. That's why this whole thing about them being one of the best teams ever to go down or one of the best teams ever to be bottom is is nonsense. They, they might look nice on the ball, or even that's done the last few weeks, but they, they are badly organised and cannot defend and they ship goals. And it's that's the sort of thing I guess Allardyce would sort out. I, don't, I wonder how much we... We, we, always draw, we always draw this line between like talent and passion or ability and passion. But I wonder if passion is a talent in itself almost that that you 
the ability to lift yourself in in a circumstance to to go above and beyond to kind of play outside of your of your kind of theoretical ability level is something that only a few players have that that's that that's maybe what separates really really great players from just very good players maybe that's that explains change to an extent the great i think the greatest example within the premier league of that is sheffield united who again if you look at the way that they play i I did a recent game sheffield united against chelsea and no on paper no sheffield united player would get into chelsea's team but sheffield united win the game 3-0 tactically chris wilder gets everything right the players individually, collectively get everything right. There's two different stuff. They do the high press, score a couple of goals. They play on a counter-attack, a counter-attack score one, should have scored another. So they're, they're a classic example of getting the balance between passion and ability right. They've been well coached so that as they've gone from League One to the Championship to the Premier League. As the standard has stepped up, presumably their, their level of coaching and their improvement has stepped up as well. But they've never lost... I talked about it a lot, the joy of being well-organised, of chasing the ball down, of making tackles, of putting teams under pressure. And that, that to me, is the perfect balance, Roy, of, of a team that's passionate about what it does, but also has a lot of talent, maybe more talent than people fully appreciate. So if you get that balance right, it become, Tottenham couldn't beat them, Tottenham lost to them, Wolves have lost to them, uh, Chelsea have now lost to them heavily as well. So that, to me, that's exactly what you're saying. I think passion shouldn't be just so, well, every team should have that. It's, we talk about it all the time. That's the very basis of a footballer, of a team. But for a lot of teams, it isn't. It isn't there, is it? That willingness to run around and, and be well-organised and want to be that type of team. But Sheffield United are a great example as well because they, you know, they had that relatively bad start. They got smashed by Man United. And at that point, you thought, right, they're, they're probably not going to get in the Champions League or certainly not going to get in the Champions League. They, they, they may well miss out on the Europa League. And it looked like kind of they, they were one of those teams that had had so much momentum before the, the hiatus that you thought, well, it, it's logical. Like, they've lost all of that impetus that they built up. So they are going to struggle a little bit to to kind of rediscover it when it when they've had this massive three month gap. But they have. They found it again. They've they've kind of dusted themselves off and gone again. So where does that, when you say dusted themselves off what what have they found? Because I've done pretty much all their games and it really started with a they they were they lost at Newcastle were terrible. Absolutely terrible. Man sent yeah. off nothing like the Sheffield United we know. <clears throat> and then they got a draw at Burnley and then they've just gone again they've just skyrocketed. So what it's not just well you they're playing a lot better. To me, they did seem a lot fitter, a lot well, and they just got back to even better than they were when things were going well earlier in the season. Maybe it's, I mean, it's that old thing, and I, I think I, this is probably something I've banned on about before, but maybe it's, maybe it's having an idea. One of the reasons why, why clubs like having a manager with a philosophy or a, a, a sort of defined style is, be, is because it gives you a barometer for, for success that you can, you can kind of measure the team's performance against. Like, it's not just where are you in the table, it's how well did you... F- did you fulfil your mission? And Sheffield United have that. They have a defined style. They have certain things that they that they want to do. They have certain ways of playing, patterns of play that that belong to them. And that is that is the idea behind their play. The players are going out knowing what they're meant to be doing. And I wonder if the problem with with Bournemouth and Villa certainly Norwich Norwich is maybe a bit different. It looks a little bit like they've just completely lost confidence. But with Bournemouth and Villa, I'm not sure they know quite so well what they're meant to be doing. I don't know whether they have that clear idea. And I think in normal circumstances, when you have a crowd that's kind of on your back and at the opposition's throat and trying to drive you on, maybe that that carries you through to some extent and you get that that one result, that one goal that you need to kind of lift your spirits again. But without fans, you don't you obviously don't have that. So you're kind of reliant on on going out and being told to follow your instructions as well as possible. And the teams that have done well 
in the last six, well, month, six weeks, I guess, are the ones who've got clear instructions. The teams that have done badly are the ones that don't have clear instructions. And that that probably holds through the table and not just at the bottom. That if you look at the teams that have got a, a very clear idea of what they want to be, Manchester United, they've done well. And if you look at the teams that where, where the, those messages are maybe a little bit mixed or the players aren't quite sure for whatever reason, Spurs, Arsenal, Leicester, they've struggled. And the, the problem is at the bottom of the table because there's no individual quality to rescue you. Maybe what you end up with, it, a team's just sort of drifting into relegation because they're not, they're not quite good enough to get themselves out of it. They're not quite motivated enough to lift themselves out of it. There's no external inspiration. But also they're not quite sure how they're meant to be doing it. Norwich obviously are the, the absolute. They are down. And so they give us the, the best case in terms of, well, how has it come to this? Something that you told us about, Chinch, when they were promoted was that they were promoted ahead of their time. Their target had been top 10 finish the year that they won the championship. So it, we perhaps shouldn't be surprised that they have been relegated because I haven't thrown money at it. it it's more the nature. The manner. The, the manner and the fact that what they were doing in the early stages of the season that so impressed us and led to that bizarre narrative that they would be the best team to go down in the history of the Premier League is that since the restart, they've only scored once. They've conceded 15. So they've not. if they'd gone down, if they'd lost those six games 3-2, 4-3 with a bit of drama, playing attacking football, going for it even if they were limited defensively and were, were taking risks that would have been understandable. It's the nature of coming back and losing 3-0 at home to Southampton, who didn't really have a great deal to, to play for. That, that set a really poor precedent. Bournemouth are an example of a team who probably have to accept that at some point, because of the nature of the Premier League and how difficult it is to keep your head above water when you're one of the smaller clubs, is that they were going to get sucked into a relegation battle from which they could not escape at some point. It just appears that it's happening this season. But if they if they do get out of it by some kind of miracle this season, they'll probably be back involved in that kind of quagmire next season. Maybe Villa, although they have had the mitigating factors of a really difficult run of fixtures since the return, the, the injuries which have obviously left them without Wesley for a large chunk of the season. And, and Tom as Heaton as well. Tom Heaton and John McGinn, who we subsequently more recently discovered, suffered a setback on his return. So he's not been anywhere where like as fit as they'd have expected him to be at, at this stage. That that they have had mitigating factors, but equally they've not done what Sheffield United have done. They've not kept the core of their promotion side together. And in fact, they've repeated the mistake of Fulham of 12 months previously of throwing a load of money at the problem, if it is a problem, of promotion and going straight back down again. So they've wasted a load of money to end up exactly where they were before. Yeah, I think the Norwich is, is interesting. That, that Norwich we've seen since the restart was nothing like the Norwich that we saw in the Championship. I know it's different leagues, but again, we've had the break scored one, conceded 15. And again, it's not just, it's the manner of those performances. And as Roy was, they're all over the place. And that was, that was not, they had a, a regimented way of playing. They, they were a possession-based team, but they had defenders who wanted to defend. Midfielders who worked very hard to help out the team as well. That, again, whether it's just the, the panic and, and that, whether that comes from the coach not knowing and just saying, we're just going to try anything now to save ourselves. Well, surely sticking to what you're really good at they beat Man City 3-2. I know it was backs to the wall, but if they'd have put that type of performance in, not as easy on the eye, 
But again, with a bit more resilience and say, look, we're just going to not concede a goal in this game. That surely would have given you better. So not playing gung-ho and players all over the place and conceding soft goals and no shape to the, um, to, to the performance. So that's what's really surprised me. And that, you're absolutely right. Look at the manner, not just the results. How have those results been achieved is the wrong word because they haven't got any wins or points or really have they so it's kind of that and it just it just goes against everything that Norwich were about which that has been the most surprising thing with their relegation there's not been a single moment from Norwich where you thought right this is this that's what's been missing I think throughout the relegation battle is there hasn't been a single moment where any of them maybe maybe until this weekend when Villa beat Palace and Bournemouth beat Leicester where any of them really looked like, right, this is the moment where they kind of realised that it's now or never. I think Eddie Howe even said that, didn't he, after the half-time of the Leicester game, that Bournemouth had had sunk right to the bottom. They were gone unless they did something, and they, with Leicester's complicity, they went and did something. And it's really unusual with Norwich, who have got a lot of praise for, and I, I'm on, and I, I kind of agree with a lot of it, that you know, it is right to, to basically yo-yo yourself. That's how you, you build for sustainability in the Premier League. It's what Burnley have done, it's it's what West Brom did and kind of continue to do, which suggests that maybe it doesn't always work. But it's that's the easiest way of doing it, is you, you come up, you take the money, you go down, you build a team that, that can not only sort of sail through the championship, but is designed for the long term in the Premier League, and you come up and you have a second, a second go and you, you're much more effective. That's a great plan. It makes total sense. But the ease with which Norwich have accepted the first part of it, of, well, we're going to get relegated, is really unusual. There's not been a single game where where you thought, right, they are fighting for this. And to be honest, Norwich's home games have been quite appealing. Oh, yeah, the, the fixtures that they've had, they have played each of the four teams who came out of the hiatus in the places just above the relegation zone. Even though they were six points further adrift, if you looked at the fixtures of the teams in the bottom three coming out of the shutdown, you'd have said, do you know what? I wouldn't bet against Norwich being the ones to get the points yeah. because look at the games they've got to play. Yeah. Couldn't be more perfect. You look at the three promoted teams. Sheffield United have got more points on their own than the, the, the two other teams, Villa and Norwich, that came up combined. So again, we're talking about ability and passion. You can see why Sheffield United finished where they have and the other two look like they're going to go down. Uh, and one of the things that uh, will upset a lot of neutral observers is that uh, bearing in mind that Liverpool's title was wrapped up pretty much uh, just before lockdown there was the caveat, at least, that the race for Europe, which is kind of half been scuppered by the fact that City are not going to be banned anymore, and indeed relegation, which has been scuppered by the fact that the Bosman three in particular have been a bit rubbish. It's kind of robbed us of all those things that we were looking forward to post-lockdown. So that's, that's one of the things that... And, and perhaps the Premier League will be a little bit annoyed about as well. Yeah, that, that last weekend of the season is perhaps not going to be the drama. It's going to be the fight for 11th. Of, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, now it's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, what a soccer story. This is an Andy Hitchcliffe tells the tale. It's playing or broadcasting days with all that up behaviour and live with the details of move. Yes, this is a story that actually, it's, it seems as though it's a, a reaction to something that we've we talked about. I think it was in the last pod about the, uh, the, the chunch. Now was this, again, it was a misspelling. Someone actually misspelled my name because I was having a bit of dig at uh, Patrick Bamford, the Leeds player, for being on his phone it's after being substituted at half-time. Who, who was it who called Max me? Max Rushton yes. called you Hunchcliffe. Hunchcliffe, and yes. And then the derivation is obviously chunch. Yes, so again, um, it, it all stemmed from my criticism of Patrick Bamford, who was substituted at half-time, uh, Leeds against Fulham. He'd scored in the first half, so it's quite a big decision for him to come off. He sat in the stands, socially distancing from his teammates, and he's, he was on his phone. So there was a, a water break halfway through the second half. So I, I mentioned this and say this is, you know, he shouldn't be on his phone. He still should be part of the You shouldn't be doing this at this point. At the end of the game, fine. Before the game, fine. Not during the game. Whether you're a sub went to come on or someone who's been taken off, you shouldn't be, in my opinion, you shouldn't be on your phone. 
presume I don't know what he's doing. Is you know, is it, is it um, talk to his mate? I don't know what he's doing. And maybe explaining why he no, came no, off and it wasn't to his speculate. fault. Continue. No, no, I don't want to speculate. Could be could be ordering a Chinese. Um, but so again, but then the strange thing was I did another Leeds game, and I thought again this had passed, you know, without comment really from too many people. Um, the fifth goal in the Leeds Stoke game is scored by P Bamford. And uh, he makes an excellent run in between defenders, ball over the top, and he adjusts his stride, his technique, his running technique was excellent. And I talk about how he adjusts his stride to get to the ball just at the right point because the angle is tight. He does everything right to give himself a chance to score. So I've, I've lauded him because he has missed a lot of chances this season, Patrick Bamford. That's part of the reason Leeds aren't promoted already. So again, P. Bamford scores the fifth goal. He turns and he's in the, he's, as, as we're commentating, we're kind of on the halfway line. So he's scored in the goal to our left. So he's, he's spun away to the corner flag on, on the left-hand side, and he's pointed upwards into, obviously, empty stands. There's no family members or anything there, so he's pointed upwards, and he's made a little gesture, like, like, like he's got little hairs on his chin. A chinny record. A little gesture. chinny little kind of gesture. And I don't know whether I'm the only one who saw this or whether I'm just being paranoid, but when they're out to get you, it's a good job you're paranoid. And um, <laughs> I'm, I'm just thinking, P. Bamford, is, was that your little way in getting back? Because he must, I presume he must have heard about this with social media and everything. He must have heard about what I said and it's been kind of, but I didn't think it was really out there. And would he really take it that, because it wasn't good, but was he? So I'm just going to throw it out there and see whether this is true. Was that a little dig at yours truly? Which again, again, players, when they do these goal celebrate, it's normally something within the squad that's happened, isn't it? Or you've grown a silly little beard, which he, he hadn't because he's not manly enough. Um, so <laughs> let's, let's double down. It, You're it, really it, defusing this no, situation. A, he, he is a baby-faced assassin. And I just wonder, and I would like to know, and I didn't, at the end of the game, I saw, no one else said anything. I don't know whether no one said anything because they saw it as well and didn't want to say, did you see what Patrick Bamford did? But the, the pointing, it's normally with family members, but with nobody there. Who, who is he pointing at and why is he, it just seems suspicious to me that that has happened with him after what the criticism I, 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 you know, but I just thought after I'd said how brilliant he'd done, I wish I'd just said, you know what, he sliced it, the jammy <laughs> bugger and it's gone in. But I didn't, again, I lauded him and said how wonderful a goal it was. So I'm going to try and find out, but no one has told, no one from Sky has mentioned anything, no one from Leeds. And uh, James is the press officer I know well, he's a, an Everton fan who, who works for Leeds. I, I was tempted to text him and say, can you just, but then I thought if I do this, you know, it just escalates, and you know, our, our families could be at war. It, it could, it could go the, uh, you know, the Montagues and the Capulets. This could go horribly wrong. The Bamford so I don't touches. want to fuel. I don't want to fuel a feud between P. Bamford and uh, H. Hunch. Chinch. So again, I just want to find out. So if anybody can enlighten me, anyone is in con- or knows Patrick Bamford at all, or is in the social media world with him, can we just find out? Because it'll be the first instance in. How many games have I done? Six, seven hundred matches that a player has has pointedly made fun. I think he's making fun of my appendage, and uh, I think he needs to be uh, held to account. If you have any answers to that question, and you are either P. Bamford or indeed related to or in contact with P. Bamford, it's a very strange way of uh, appealing for that information when you could have just gone directly to the source, but still. Uh, yeah, but I'm a coward. To setpiecemenu on Twitter or indeed setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Stephen, Andy, and Rory, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece menu if you enjoy, unless Chinch gets murdered very soon indeed. Have any of you guys been a pro? Like anybody, anybody you've written about or anybody you've You've, you've all ver- ver- well, verbally abused people. So has Jay- anyone ever Jamie turned Carragher's on you? Jamie dad is the story yeah. of Rory, but nobody's turned on me apart from Sir Alex Ferguson on a weekly basis. Steve, anyone giving you grief? No, because I'm a diplomat, Chinch. 
I'm, I'm, right. I'm, the, I'm the one that comes in to smooth things over. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. But dip- diplomats can get into hot water at times, can't they? So you say that, but have you, has, has a, a player ever come to you? Without any immunity. I operate, ah. I operate in the shadows, Chinch. Do you? Or you, you mean you just run away into the dark? Roberto Martin, I upset Roberto Martin as well. Yes, they still haven't built, rebuilt that bridge, have you? What did you say about him? No. Oh, I said that, I, well, I didn't, I basically kind of did a piece looking at why, like, his time at Everton was was ending on a low. And they, they, this is really cowardly, but they kind of, the Times put, a, not, the, not, not the New York Times, the, the other one, put a slightly more than necessarily incendiary headline on it. And I, I've told the story before. Yeah. Does, this, does this happen in the newspaper industry? Rory, you say, you're suggesting so, that the, yeah. the headline doesn't always reflect the content <laughs> of the piece. I, far be it from me to make that sweeping generalisation, Stephen, but certainly in my case, whenever there's a problem, it's not my fault.